Alright, ladies and gentlemen, this is another episode of Off the Record Podcast where we interview great founders and entrepreneurs about their journey, fundraising, bootstrapping, failures, and successes. And our guest today wanted to be an actor. She majored in theater at Columbia College Chicago and due to a turn of events actually went on sales route and spent more than a decade in sales in tons of roles in B2B tech companies. And right now, Christina is the president of a company called Sales Assembly. She's here with us today. Christina, thank you for joining. Really great to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. And you happen to be a podcast host too. I am. Yeah. As of recent, um, my podcast is called Taking the Lead, and um, it's a female-only show. I'm hosting it. All of our guests are iconic female executive leaders in B2B tech, and we talk about all kinds of things, but uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to do what we do. I love the name, by the way. When I saw it, I was like, this is, this is good marketing, and whoever came up with it, that's well done. <laughs> I would love to take credit, but I cannot. Our CEO, Jeff Rossa, came up with the name, and when he presented it, I was like, ah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so he's, uh, he's better at marketing than he realizes. So, 100%. How's it going so far? I mean, you, it's, um, you're, you're hosting it. How do you find the experience? Um, I, I love it. I love it because I like having in-depth conversations with people. So I'm, I'm an introvert at heart. So having shallow conversations with a lot of acquaintances really drains my energy, but meeting incredible people and diving in and having a really in-depth, tactical, meaningful conversation, um, fills it. And so I love being able to do the show and meet these wonderful people who have done just unimaginable things in their lives to get where they are. And it's, it's neat that they share it on my show. So it's going really well. I've seen a few episodes. They sound super cool. So uh, that's Thanks. awesome. That's awesome. You're doing it now. <clears throat> I, I want to spend a little bit of time in this interview to talk a little bit about your career journey and some of the lessons that uh, you've gotten from them. Uh, but before we get into it, you're a president at sales assembly. What does that mean? What do you do on a day to day? Yeah, a little bit of everything. Um, any smaller company, um, you wear multiple hats and you happily step in where it's needed. So in the course of any day, I will record a podcast episode or I'll work to build new programming or I'll tweak our internal calendar or have a one-on-one -on -one with one of our employees or meet with a member and do strategy advisory. So I'm doing all kinds of things every day, which is what I love, it, it keeps me feeling busy and keeps things feeling fresh. But at a high level, my job is strategy, making sure that the product is stellar and always evolving to meet the needs of our members, which our members, to put it plainly, are any B2B tech SaaS company that are in any stage of, of scaling. Um, and so I'm making sure that our product is stellar. I'm making sure to continue to innovate, keep my ear to the ground, um, and then also provide a lot of strategy, uh, mentorship and advisory to our members directly. So I'm president, but I, 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 I very much play the role right now of like a product officer. Very super involved in every yes. day to day. Yes. <laughs> so s sales assembly, I, how do you, I had an idea of how you work. It's, it seems to be more like, um, an agency. Maybe I'm, I'm uh, and uh, I don't, I don't want anybody to quote me on the agency word because I know it's dangerous. Uh, but uh, dare what you? is it? No. I know, right? <laughs> but how does this really? How, what's the concept? Because I think it's a little bit unique. 
Yeah, um, it is. We're the, we're the only company of our kind right now and have been for the last four years. Um, at a high level, it's scale as a service. And what that basically means is we offer a company-based membership. So when a company joins Sales Assembly and becomes a part of our network, every employee at that company gets unlimited access to everything that we offer. And our offerings are meant to hit multiple areas of the business that are typical areas of need where companies spend a lot of money to scale. We segment that and scale better, scale faster, and scale smarter. So to keep it brief, scale better is the learning and development portion of it. We provide weekly trainings, certifications. Scale faster will help you hire, onboard, um, and ramp your folks. Um, And then scale smarter is the strategy piece of it where we have a lot of programs and opportunities to get strategy advisory for your BDR all the way up to your executive leadership. Um, So it's really kind of an all-in, one-size-fits-all resource for your company as you're scaling for whatever you need, all for the price of membership. And we have those resources for every role in your revenue organization, whether you're an account executive, a marketer, a RevOps professional, or a CRO, um, we have all Mm -hmm. of those resources for you. And who do you normally would um, work with, Christina, in terms of, I mean, obviously B2B, uh, probably, mostly, but in terms of the size, like, would it be smaller or mid-sized or larger folks? So if you look at our membership base, um, it's mostly, like you said, B2B, a little bit of B2C in there as well, because a lot of the concepts are very, very similar, and it can be very, very useful for that as well. Um, Our sweet spot is sort of that Series B, Series C type of company where they have enough people that they need the resources, but not necessarily the infrastructure and the budget to go and pay for what they typically cost outside of sales assembly. So we can just help them be more efficient by covering what they need at a fraction of what they would normally pay. Um, But we have members who have three employees. We have members that have 5,000. And so think of it as like a buffet. We have some members who come to the buffet and they're like, I want a bit of everything. I'm getting the mac and cheese, the ice cream, the dinner rolls, let's hit it. And then we have other members that are like, we come solely for the artichoke dip. That's it. That's all we're eating, but we're happy with it. So it's really... We have all the resources. Use what you need right now. I love that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> you said something important, I think, where or unique, where you said nobody, very few other folks do the same thing. Yeah. And why, why is that? It's not that what we're doing is revolutionary. Um, you know, like we're not, we don't see ourselves as like this, this incredible thing that nobody else thought of, mainly because we don't want to be egotistical about it. But... A lot of companies hone in and focus on one of what we offer and put all of their resources there. But when Matt, uh, when Matt Green and Jeff Russett founded the company four years ago, their main thought was companies spend a lot of time and a lot of money on all of these individual facets of having to scale their business. And when you're spending six figures on what you need to support yourself as you grow, you're actually also inhibiting your growth and you can't hire and you can't invest in proper tooling. Our goal is to be a massive industry disruptor and to completely revolutionize the way that companies scale. How they do it is the same that you see. It's training, Mm -hmm. it's advisory, it's certifications, um, it's strategy, it's it's connectivity and network. It's the same way that it's always been done, but never all in one. And then where we price it as well, we have kept it deliberately very, very low again because we want to disrupt that. And the money that you save by 
working with us, you can actually go invest in scaling your company. You can actually go hire and buy tooling. Um, so we're here to shake things up. But in terms of the model, Christina, so if let's say you, you, you sign a few large clients who would be working with you really intensely, does this mean you need to scale up? You actually need more people, hire more people on your end? Or would the, a lot of the resources be documented courses, workflows, charts, where you don't necessarily have to, like a lot of, of services-based companies would, oh, we need to hire now because we, you've got the large client. Um, we would not have to hire based on getting a large client. We would actually, we've been hiring, so our team has more than doubled in the last year. Um, and that has been on the support side and the tech and innovation side of our business of wanting to make our product stronger, wanting to offer the ability for our companies to interact with sales assembly in a new and very engaging way and then also provide like proper customer lifecycle management so we've hired on the support side of it but because our model is majority virtual learning we can have a thousand people in every one of our events without it taking any additional bandwidth on our end so we don't have to hire resources based on how many employees at a certain company, but we would increase resources based on our total membership base. So for example, if our membership base doubles in the next year, we would need to hire people in to support right. them and make sure they have a good experience. Yeah. I want to go back to, or kind of move on to your career side, which I think is pretty, uh, quite fascinating. You <laughs> wanted to be an actor, uh, and, uh, there's something uh, super personal that kind of, uh, moved you on a different path. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah um, I grew up in a family of artists. Uh, and from when I was really little, I had my first piano lessons at age two. And throughout my entire life, I was just surrounded in arts, dancing, painting, singing, theater, music. My, my mom was the pianist of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and my dad was a world-renowned opera singer. And so we just, we grew up amongst it. And mm. I, uh, <laughs> like my roots, wanted to go into um, theater and acting, and I always had a knack for it. Like my ultimate goal was to be on a sitcom one day. Um, and uh, unfortunately, so my parents were divorced from when I was really, really early, uh, when I was really, really young. And uh, when I was 20, my mom passed away from uh, breast cancer. And then when I was uh, 21, my dad passed away from um, alcoholism-induced uh, liver failure. And so me and my two sisters were sort of left um, on our own. We lost our home that we grew up in. Um, I spent about six months homeless living on people's couches while trying to get through school and pay for it on my own. My younger sister was only 16. Mm. Um, and at that time I realized, uh, this is not the time for me to go and live out my dream. This is the time for me to get back on my feet and be able to support myself and help my sister get through college and do kind of the hard things that you don't want to have to think about. Um, and I needed to make a lot of money. I had to pay for school. I didn't want to be in a large amount of debt and I didn't know what to do. And, um, at that time I was being heavily recruited, like every college graduate in 2007, 2008 during the recession to sell insurance. And so they hit me up and they said, Hey, this is, this is great because you can come work for us and we will not pay you a base salary. And there is absolutely no guaranteed income. But if you take all of these tests, you can work for 80 hours a week and make a lot of money. And in my mind, I'm like that <laughs> sold. I don't know, you know like why anybody does that, but, but I did. And what I learned was um, as, as an artist and a performer, 
I was good at sales. I think those two are so synonymous with each other. I recommend every salesperson or leader take an acting course or an improv class because it just makes you better at what you do. I was good at sales and I liked doing it. Did not like selling insurance. <laughs> so that's kind of what got me on my path to, to sales. And then uh, when the dust settled, I realized, um, holy cow, I love this. And so now I just, uh, I make my family laugh and that's the, uh, the extent of my theater acting now. <laughs> That's a pretty insane story. I think probably one of the most, the craziest ones we had on this, um, on this show, but that's <laughs> yeah. for sure. Uh, have you ever thought of kind of going back and doing something or it's, it's a little bit more kind of a little late? I've thought a lot about if I were to go back and do something, what would I do? What's amazing about the work that I do now is I'm able to kind of tickle that itch like by leading my podcast and having opportunities like this. Um, I love doing public speaking and motivational speaking. One thing that I do is use my story to talk to people about perseverance and, um, and how to be the best versions of themselves. And I talk to people about how it's okay to be down. Like I will help you to learn how to bend instead of break. And so I'm able to use my experience in a very public way and use my training to be at least somewhat natural when I'm talking to people. So I feel like I get to use it. Now, as you know, you know, somebody in my mid thirties and, and a mom, I don't know that it's the same itch to go and, you know, be a movie star or be a sitcom star. Like that being said, if anyone listening wants to pay me to come be in your movie, I would be happy to. Um, but, <laughs> but these days, these are the kinds of things that I do to sort of fulfill that itch of just putting myself out in the world. Mm, yeah, <clears throat> that, that, uh, that totally makes sense. And it's, it's, a it's a tough journey. And I actually read about your about your openness and willingness to help people on your LinkedIn. I've uh, seen a lot of people actually talking about how you worked with them, like some of the, some of the, um, you know, what people uh, were sharing uh, about your work. What do you normally tell people in terms of like perseverance? Like what do they need to know about that or any, anything that they need to keep in mind? Um, in terms of perseverance, it looks different based on where you are. Perseverance sometimes means make it to the next minute, make it to the next hour, find some way to take baby steps and do that as long as you need to until you can go a little bit longer. Um, and perseverance also doesn't mean you slap a smile on your face and say everything is okay. Other people have it so much worse and convincing yourself that your pain isn't valid. You can't recover from pain if you don't acknowledge it. If you have a bullet wound that is bleeding, it doesn't go away by ignoring it and saying, just smile through it. And so often pain that we go through does feel like that. So the first thing is address the wound, feel what you need to feel, lean on people and support them and do that as long as you need to until you're really ready to move on. And so many people feel like they can't, they can't feel their real feelings when they're going through something hard. Um, and it's a detriment to the recovery. So perseverance is about acknowledging where you are, taking it one day at a time. And when you're ready, taking that next step forward and starting to future plan. Um, and that can be if you're going through a true hardship in your life, a hardship in work. If you're having a rough afternoon, you can persevere through all kinds of things um, like we've just seen in the course of this last year. But I think the first part of it is it's okay to not be okay. We don't say that to each other enough. 
I think social media doesn't help too, right? You go on, right. you go in, and you're like, everybody's so doing so well. I'm like, yeah, why is that so happy? <laughs> right, everyone's happy. Everybody's losing weight, or you know, there's a lot of mothers right now, or women who are longing to be mothers, where all they want is to be a parent, and all their friends are giving their pregnancy announcements on Facebook, and it's what's wrong with me? Why am I broken? And you're right, the influence of social media and the perception that everyone is happier than you are um, can be a detriment. It's pretty unbelievable when you actually speak to other folks and tell your story or at least share what you feel, how quickly you realize that everybody goes or a ton of people go through exactly the same thing and they just never actually spoke about it. It blows my mind. Like it's unbelievable and you only know about it after you actually share it even a little bit. Right, right. Well, we don't live in a society where what has turned us into who we are is always celebrated. And that's the reality of it is when you go through something hard, it becomes a part of you. It's a part of your armor. Um, and I often say for people to think about what their stairs are, are made out of, um, you know, are your stairs made out of you learning how to elevate yourself out of your own experiences? Sometimes we feel like our lives are our baggage, right? And we have to wear them on our body and wear us down, but they don't have to be. You can put your baggage on the ground and use it to rise up. It's just getting in the proper mindset and not being afraid to talk about it. Like I, talking about my background was scary for me at first because I was afraid that people were going to think less of me because of it or think that for some reason I wasn't strong. Um, and that's BS, that's, that's head trash. Um, so if you're listening to this and you've, you've been through something incredible in your life, share your story because it makes you who you are and you're helping somebody who's afraid to speak up. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. It's a, it's a really interesting topic that, uh, I think maybe not talked enough about. And also I think it's influenced by a lot of BS like, oh, you know, like there's a lot of these courses that are just so sad where they're trying to extract money from people and, uh, you watch it and like, it's just really unfortunate, but it doesn't really help people at all. And cause like you could create a course and, you know, and sell it. Uh, and that's, um, that also doesn't help the whole industry or people. Yeah. I, I talk often about the fact that I hate fluffy content. <laughs> and what I mean is that if people are taking their time and especially spending their money to listen to the content that you're putting out, pay some respect to that. Um, and fluffy content that is not actionable, that doesn't have tactical tips, that doesn't help that person be better right now, today, or at least in the near future, shouldn't be out there. Um, and we've seen such a steep increase in what I would call fluffy content with, you know, COVID in, in our hopefully very near past, but all of these courses aimed at helping people who have been laid off or helping people to get promoted and taking advantage of people in their time of need by taking either their money or their time and not providing something that is genuinely going to help them uh, is, is troubling. And we do see it all too often. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't lead to any, uh, anywhere and, and a good, it, it's like you, you optimize for the money. It doesn't, it's not a long-term thing. Like people right. eventually figure it out and uh, it's, it's just, um, I, I guess it doesn't really help or like there's still going to be a ton of people who are doing it. So <laughs> that's not ideal. But I wanted to go back to your, your career, Christina. So your first role was uh, selling insurance. I mean, wasn't uh, probably wasn't the most exciting. But what did you do after that? You, tr you did it for a little bit. You figured out uh, sales totally work. And um, what do you do uh, after that? Yeah, I, I worked at MetLife as a full-blown financial planner uh, for about a year and a half, almost two years. 
And then I knew that I needed to do something different. I had this moment where I was, uh, I was helping a customer who needed help with his retirement and he was in really, really bad shape. Um, and I'm somebody in my young 20s with not a lot of life experience and could not even relate to what this individual was, was feeling. And all I could think about in the meeting was, here's the products that are gonna make me the most money and they weren't always the same ones that were going to help him to do what he needed to do. And that moment of morality, of choosing between my own bottom line and what's going to help this this individual to be able to retire and support his family, I never wanted to be in that position again. And I never wanted to feel like I was doing something that was only one-way servicing. So it was actually a couple days after that meeting that... Um, I, I quit without having another job. Uh, I just, I couldn't do it. I don't know that I would quit again like that. I would probably at least have a couple of, a couple <laughs> planes in the air, you know, but, but I was young and impulsive and I was like, I can't do it. It doesn't feel good. Um, so I spent a little bit of time bartending and then um, my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, uh, had a friend who worked at Groupon who was this, you know, the cool new startup in Chicago. And he's like, you should check them out. So um, I, I had an interview to be an account executive and launch a market at Groupon way early before they went public. And um, you, were the, you, you were there in 2012, right? Like super Yeah, 2011, early. 2012, yeah. I, was, I saw it, I was like, wow, like it's gotta be really hard probably to explain to people what the hell is this? I mean, I like the like uh, you just started saying like I, I sell coupons and it's so much more than that. Like at the time, it was really cool to be a part of something revolutionary. And I learned how to sell something that's never been done before. If you can do that, you will be a better seller long term. If you have to sell something where there is no baseline, there's no existing talk track. You can't say we're like so-and-so or we are like so-and-so. You truly have to sell something that no one's heard of before. That's where I got my sales chops. But man, those Groupon early days, they were fun. They were wild. I remember my first day I got handed a packet. It was like this, I mean, it was the, it was like it shook the wall when they dropped it in front of me and they were like, <laughs> here's your scripts and everything you need to know. And I was like, what? <laughs> are you kidding Jesus. me? Yeah, you know, cause the, I mean, it was like, the, everyone's just flying by the seat of their pants. Like we're gonna figure this thing out. Um, but if I hadn't had that experience, I don't think I would be where I am. Like that figure it outiveness started there. Well, we can't move on possibly from this point because we need to figure, like we need to ask you how do you sell something that that you don't have any unit that doesn't exist no analogies yeah. the first thing you have to do is you have to first put yourself in the position of the user and figure out what you would want to know if you had the product in your hand so don't think about selling the product to somebody in fact when you're selling things never think about how do i sell this to you instead i'm the user this is in my hand. And in this case, the user would be the companies who are working with Groupon as they call them the merchants. So, you know, their customer, Groupon has two customers, the business owners and then the person who's actually two using sides. the Groupon. Yeah, but you picture yourself in both, right? So I'm a merchant and what would I need to know about this to understand it, to feel good about buying it? And then put yourself in the position of the customer. What would I need to know to feel good about buying it? What questions would I have if somebody just threw this on my desk? And you write all of those down. And when you write all of those down, you also then don't think about selling something. You think about telling a story. The best salespeople are storytellers. Um, Andrew Sykes, the CEO of Habits at Work, is somebody who talks about this a lot, but the idea of storytelling in sales. And so when you're selling anything, especially something that's never been done, start by putting yourself in the shoes of the buyer and then back into your sales process from there.
What do you tell to people? Because I've been in sales too. And um, there's always this customer or a few who are like, oh, I don't care about, just give it, tell me exactly in three words. I want to know right now. Like, what do you, like, how do I do this? What do you tell to these people? Because sometimes it's just hard to keep them through the whole conversation. There aren't a lot of them, but sometimes there are. My response would be anything meaningful is going to take more than three words. If this is not a great time for you to learn about this or potentially take advantage, that's okay. We can talk when it is a good time. Um, but what I don't want to do is take something that could be important and meaningful and massively impact your bottom line and chunk it down to three words. I think anything meaningful in your life, you can't chunk it down to that. Most of the time when customers say that, they are saying it expecting you to fail so that they can say, I gave you a shot, but the answer is still no. Um, calling that out ahead of time versus feeling caught in a trap of, um, okay, uh, discount coupon customers. That's, what do you, you want to buy that? Like, you're, it's, you're set up to fail. So in those cases, I call those yellow lights. It's a Covey term, and it's slowing down and saying, if you're wanting me to do that, you either don't have the time or you don't see the value in even continuing a conversation with me. That's okay. That's okay. But I don't want to insult either of us by chunking down something that could be meaningful to you in three words. Don't fall great for response. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so you did group, you were at Groupon for a while, like for about four years, five years. Yeah. Five years, a little bit over. And and at what point did you move on to actually managing people? Because I think that's a, a there's, there's this shift with, uh, with people who are in sales. Some of them choose to always be in sales or to actually yeah. always sell. Um, and they, they like it. And then some people like you actually shift into management. What point did you do that? So it was about a year and a half to two years in where, um, once again, I realized I was good at selling and I enjoyed it. Um, but I also really liked solving problems and I liked being creative and I liked trying new things. Um, and I liked inspiring people. Um, and as a sales rep, you can absolutely do that, but the range of your microphone is so much smaller. Um, and I got to the point at Groupon where I realized I can have such a bigger impact, not just on the company, certainly the company, but the people. I can have an impact on the people. I think I can have an impact on the product, on the way that we sell. I can help us to innovate this and move forward. And I've always had this knack to do something that's never been done before, if it can help people, if it can be a win-win. Like, that's where I want to be. Um, so right around two years in, I had started to talk to my leadership at that time about maybe, you know, these, this is what I want to do. And I didn't identify it as leadership at the time. I was like, I want to, I want to inspire people and I want to, I want to innovate on the product and I want to tweak our sales process and I want to help people who are struggling. And I just started talking about these things I wanted to do. And then it became like, oh yeah, then I'm going to get on the call and I'm going to sell a bunch of Groupons and it'll be great, but I want to do this other stuff, you know? And they were like, well, you should, you should be a manager. And I was like, okay. I guess I'll do that. Um, and so I, I got my opportunity there. Um, the current team that I was on had 35 people on it, and there were two managers on that team. And so that ratio was, was unsustainable. Um, mm -hmm. And so they decided to bring a third manager on for that team. So then I was actually promoted to manage the existing team that I was on. And then due to some internal shifts, both of those managers moved to a different place. And so it was me as a brand new manager managing 35 people who used to be my peers. It was not great. <laughs> no, especially at first. Probably. It's not great. I did not succeed as I would call it in that role. 
I was going to ask you, like, how did that go? <laughs> not, not well. You know, like, I, I, could, I, could, I could put on a front and be like, you know, it was great. But here's the thing. I didn't have enough time to spend proper one-on-one -on -one time. I couldn't solve problems. I couldn't get to know my people. I was consistently overwhelmed. And when you're overwhelmed, you're not strategic, you're reactive. And so I initially built my leadership muscles on being reactive. And my natural communication style, I'm a very direct communicator. And when I get stressed out, I get really unemotional and very railroady. And I learned that about myself. So when you put me in a position where I am under the gun, under stress, I get really, really intense. Um, and I, I stop thinking about anything other than just get it done, get it done, get it done. Well, that doesn't always connect with salespeople. They want someone who's going to be a little bit warmer, a little bit more approachable. And now I've learned Personal. how to do that. Yeah. Right. I've learned how to do that now being a, a leader for a decade. But at the time, I was so reactive. I was so stressed out. Um, I learned a lot about how to be a great leader by candidly being not that great of a leader when I first started. Hmm. So at the time, did you think about, hey, maybe I should just jump back, you know, do, sell a little bit more <laughs> or like, hey, let's, <laughs> let's figure it out. Well, what was interesting was I felt unsuccessful from the qualitative aspect of being a leader. In terms of the quantitative aspect, my team was performing and they were hitting their numbers. Um, but I didn't want, I wasn't the person I wanted to be. I wasn't having the impact on their lives individually that I wanted to have because I simply, a one to 35 ratio, and there's just no way. Nobody can do that. Even, even, a, even a one to 20, one to 15, one to 10, it's, it's too many people as a frontline manager to really make that kind of an impact. Um, I was only in that position for about six to eight months before I was promoted to another market, which was a much smaller market where I had a more ideal ratio. And it was actually at that time that I first got a professional mentor. His name um, is Bill Bartlett. Uh, he works for, he was the CEO of one of the Sandler offices. Um, Groupon had provided them as a resource to the leaders and the reps to come in and do Sandler training. And I jumped on that. And over the next three, three and a half years, I spent a lot of time, not just with him, but I pulled in other professional mentors to, to help make me a better leader and do what I wanted to do. And so that combined with my intuition, um, everything changed for me by doing that. But it goes back to needing a village and not being afraid to say something's not right. I want it to be better. I'm going to own the solution. What have you um, changed in your leadership style? Because mentors make a massive difference, unbelievable difference. And I think it's such a, everybody talks about it. And I think there's a lot of people like, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I should, I should. But like realistically, um, and like all super high performance have mentors because it's like, it's theoretically impossible to keep yourself at the super high level because you need a, a, the right perspective which you did, which, which you got, like, well, how did your style evolve? Like, what was the, like the change that you made or maybe some principles that you, that you started to implement? The first step was being able to identify what my own style was, like being able to be introspective and figure out who am I as a leader? What is my communication style? How do I naturally behave? And then how is that perceived by people with the same or similar style or something different? Um, so the first thing that I did um, with my mentors as a part of kind of that training program was a disk analysis. Don't know if you've oh, done right. that or heard of that, but it's, it's basically like a, yeah, it's a behavioral diagnosis. Um, and I learned that I'm a really, really high D um, with a little bit of I and barely any S and barely any C. And, and when I looked at it, plotted out on paper, it felt so simplistic, but I was like, oh my gosh, this makes a ton of sense. 
I dove so headfirst into that that I spent the next nine to 10 years and I still studying the psychology of human connection and behavior and conversation and mirroring and how we show up at work with each other versus in our personal relationships. And then what you do when you recognize that somebody has a different communication or behavioral pattern than you and how you amend that to make it feel like it's a safe place. So I spent years studying that and not only practicing it myself, but being able to identify it in others. And now it's actually something that I train on is how to identify communication, identify the framework to talk about it, and then use that for feedback conversations and coaching. But it's all about approachability and taking down walls. And a good leader knows how to do that. It knows how to make people connect to you and get buy-in to you right away. And so much of that is psychology. So the change was me seeing something that made such a difference in myself, seeing like, oh my gosh, that's me on paper. I get it. I was like, I'm gonna make everybody get it. <laughs> like, that's right. how you it's, do it. it. That's the key. <laughs> well, it's like, what comes to mind is a book, um, you might have read Principles, Ray Dalio, where he, t he talks about everybody takes the self like these tests uh, and, and everybody has even a scorecard, I think they call it, where they everybody knows like, oh, this I'm a communicator like that and don't talk to me this way, talk to me that way. But it's like, it's and then they have on top of it like this radical transparency, but it goes back to that like approach, like that personal approach with your, uh, with your right. team. Right, and as a leader, it's your job to train on how to make yourself comfortable, approachable, and effective with your people. So as a leader, it's never, well, here's how I need people to associate with me, and here's the best way to get through to me. It's recognizing, here's my style, here's how I behave, here's how I communicate, here's how I think, right? It comes down to that. Here's the people on my team, whether those are individual contributors or leaders or directors, depending on the level of leadership that you're at, your job is to do that for them. Your job is to mirror them. Your job is to get to know them. And that's the difference with a leader is I should never as a leader expect people to know how to work with me or put the burden on them to be like, oh, here's how you got to work with Christina. Like, oh, Christina doesn't respond well to that. You've got to make sure that you talk to her this way, right? Like great leaders don't put the onus on their people to learn how to relate right. to them. They flip it. What about one-on-ones? What do you, um, anything you learned or suggest or doing with one-on-ones to make it uh, real effective? Oh yes, I learned that from having really bad one-on-ones where you know you get in a room and you're like, so, what's <laughs> up, right? Like every leader has done that where you're like, I know I need to have a one-on-one -on -one, and now we're in a one-on-one -on -one, and it's like, hey, how are you? How are things? Yeah. It's great. So the first thing that I learned is um, have an agenda for your one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, that's number one. And I'll kind of talk tactically about what that looks like. Um, and then number two, one-on-ones are not the meetings that you can move loosey-goosey. Like what a lot of leaders do is they have their one-on-ones on their calendar, but if something else comes up, they move or cancel the one-on-ones first. And what you're often. telling your people, so much, and you're telling your people you're not important enough for me to not bump you somewhere else. Whatever else is coming in is more important than you. And that may not be what you think, but perception is everything. So look at your one-on-ones like unless something crazy happens, you don't move that one-on-one. -on -one. I also look at this like it is my, my direct reports time with me. It is their agenda that matters first and it is their strategic time to spend with me. What that means is don't sit down in every one-on-one -on -one and just talk about your rep's pipelines 
or your your CSM's NPS scores or CTA trigger action times. Like don't sit down and just talk about metrics with them. That's not an effective one-on-one. If you need to sit and talk to your people weekly about their pipeline or their big deals, find another time to do that that is separate from your one-on-one time, which should be focused on getting to know them. It should be focused on what they want to do with their career. It should be focused on the skills and behaviors they need to improve in order to move on to the next level. That's what your one-on-one should be focused on. And then also should be focused on, are there any fires we need to be aware of? Like, is there anything that I need to know? Um, Not sitting and saying, what's going on with this deal? What's going on with that deal? What's going on with that customer? Like that is not an effective use of traditional one-on-one time. And what I recommend you do tactically is have even a Google Doc that is shared with you and that individual, and each of you have it open throughout the course of the week. And as things come up that you want to address in one-on-one, add them in the Google Doc. And I used to get down to my one-on-ones, whether I was managing reps, whether I was managing other managers, and say, all right, it's your time. Let's pop open the agenda. You go first. We'll get through everything you need to get through. And then my stuff comes second. And if I don't get to my stuff, I'll shoot you an email after. And we go through their agenda items. Um, and it can be as loose as that. It also doesn't have to be super structured, but make it meaningful. And it's an employee's job uh, or your team's job to come up with an agenda first. Not, it's like it, they, they drive the conversation or they should. Right, right, because that's also career development. Um, that happens a lot too, to your point, is you get in a one-on-one and then you're, you know, you're with your, your rep and you're like, okay, so what's going on? And they're like, I don't know. You're like, well, this is your time with me. You tell me like, this is your time. I also would tell like the people reporting to me, if you need to cancel or move your one-on-one, you are free to, I won't, but you can, because it's your time. And if you realize, Hey, this time, like it's going to be more important and meaningful for me to have this customer conversation or go do this over here. You never have to feel bad emailing me and say like, Hey, I have to bump our one-on-one time. I assume it's for a good reason but it doesn't work the other way around. When it works the other way around, they feel like they're unimportant. But yes, as an individual contributor or manager, if you're going into a one-on-one with your boss, that's your time. That's your time with them. You should own that time and show them that you can drive. I'm gonna go back to Groupon or just touch on Groupon. So you've been there, you uh, improved a lot on the leadership and then you jump into Glassdoor what was Glassdoor like? Um, Glassdoor is amazing. Um, they still are. They they will always have a really incredible piece of my heart. So uh, the last couple of months of Groupon, I was leading um, a pilot team there. And so it was kind of a startup within a startup. Um, and I, in no way, shape or form, was looking or thinking about leaving. Um, I was like all in on what I was doing. Um, and a couple people I had managed previously worked at Glassdoor and they called me and they said, they're opening a Chicago office. They're looking for someone to come in and build the office. Um, and I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Like I've, you know, I've been a group on for a long time. I'm really comfortable. And I initially turned it down. So they contacted me in like July or August that like this was coming next year. And I was like, I, I just got into this new gig. I'm running a pilot team. Like I'm loving what I'm doing. Thank you for thinking of me, but I'm good where I am. Uh, and then they called me back in November and they were like, are you sure? Because we really want to talk to you and you should at least talk. And I was like, all right, I'll take the call. Um, and I did, and I fell in love with the opportunity and I realized how rare it was. And when is the next time I'm going to get a chance to build an office from scratch? And the leadership there was absolutely incredible. 
um, the CEO at the time, Robert Holman, and Kate Allering, who was the CRO, and just my leaders who were there, I was like, these are people I want to work with and a culture I want to be a part of. And I was like, I feel like I can grow here. So I slaved over the decision to leave, but then, then I did. What I was, was it a similar, uh, Christina, was it a similar role, uh, managing the team, driving everything from scratch effectively in the new office? Yeah, it was very similar. It was it was a little bit more because at that I felt like I was straddling because I had to manage my individual team. So I joined Glassdoor as a frontline manager and my job was to grow kind of the growth team there. Um, but then I also was one of the only leaders in the office. So then I had to participate in hiring for all of the different departments. I had to step in and wear multiple hats. Like one day I'm a sales leader and in facilities. The next day I feel like I'm doing HR work. I was sitting at the front desk sometimes. I was helping the new business reps. Like I feel like, you know, I, I was one of the only leaders in the Chicago office and I was kind of home ground there. And so um, I wound up having to do a lot of work that was outside of just my day to day, kind of what I'm being paid to do, which was what I signed up for. And honestly, um, kind of prepared me for the role I'm in now. And then I wound mm -hmm. up moving from being an individual contributor or from being a frontline manager at Glassdoor to being a head of sales for the growth team. Was it, how is it different to, to run, to run the team at Glassdoor compared to, to Groupon? Like what was, what was the difference between managing the team? Like, what, was there like a fundamental difference? Uh, obviously there were differences in the business and, and the product of course, but like, like how, how was it different if you were to compare for you? The only thing that is different is it was very culturally different. Um, and I'm not saying anything bad about the culture at, at Groupon. I spent many, many happy years there. But I would say Glassdoor was so much more focused on the culture and employee uh, well-being and work-life balance, um, supporting a radically candid environment. And so I learned a lot about how to give feedback and properly coach at Groupon through my mentorship relationship, but then I got to actually apply it at Glassdoor um, and learn what to do and what not to do. Because there's learning something and then, there's, and then there's doing it. And oftentimes that can be a little clunky, you know, like I can watch someone run a marathon, but then you see me out there hoofing it. I'm like, okay, there's some things I don't know. <laughs> I, I like those marathons, by the way, when they were trying to do, oh, it's a virtual marathon. Like, okay, like a virtual, I could probably do all, like the ultra marathon in that case. <laughs> on my right, couch. right, I'll take my time. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <It's> so great. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about world-class sales reps that you had an opportunity to work with, either on your team or on a competitor team or, or from the manager perspective. Uh, What's some of the qualities that you have seen with people that really surprise you besides the ones that are more common or more known something that really you didn't expect i mean all kinds of things because celebrating how people are individuals you always wind up being surprised in a great way um what i learned is that there is no ideal profile for almost any role and like, that's surprising. And that's kind of crazy to say, because you get the question all the time, like what makes the ideal salesperson? What makes the ideal client successor up? What makes the ideal sales leader? And I'm just like, that's, that's the wrong question because I have seen people of all types, backgrounds, creeds who are in those roles and they can be successful. And so for me, I learned that it's not about how you act or how you communicate. It's, it's your driver your ability to adapt to change and your passion for what you're doing. If you have those things, you can do any job. 
If you want to learn about it, if you're passionate about it, if you are motivated, and also if you're willing to identify when something isn't work or when you're not good at it. Like to me, the best professionals in the world are people who are able to identify what they suck at versus the people who are able to identify what they're good at. Um, because the people who can identify what they suck at know how to bring in people to help or say, this isn't the right spot for me, but I think I should go over there. Right? Like those are the people that I'm inspired by where I'm like, good self-awareness and like way to level up yourself instead of talking about how great you are, which is good. Like I, you should self-promote. Yeah. But knowing where you're not strong and how to flex that muscle or move to an area where you are, um, that can sometimes be more important. Super critical, super critical. Every single super highest performer, it doesn't matter what field, Formula One, um, sports, anything, anything. Yeah. It's unbelievable self-awareness. Like they look at the details. Oh, here's what I did wrong. Here's what I need to do. Going with the, with the feedback makes a massive difference. Are you... I know there's different camps. One camp is like, oh, I need to double down on my strength. Uh, some people are like, well, sure, double down on your strength, but bring up your weaknesses too. Where, where, where do you stand on that? What do you need to be good in your role today? Um, if your weakness doesn't impact the way that you're performing in your role, then double down on your strength. If where you have gaps or areas that need improvement are stopping you from either hitting your targets today or getting where you want to go, um, then focus on those. Um, so it depends because every single human being has strengths and has weaknesses. And if you're focusing on one or the other without determining what's important right now or important for where you got to go, then you're going to be a little bit misguided. So the first thing you have to know outside of where am I strong and where am I weak is what am I doing today? And what are the expectations of somebody in this seat and what skills are needed and behaviors are needed to be successful? And now which of those do I feel like I'm really, really great at and can continue doing and which of those do I need work on? And how do I prioritize based on how they're impacting my bottom line? And then the second piece of it is now when I look at advancement, right? You look at the idea of mastery of current role versus when you're ready for advancement. When you've hit mastery of current role, maybe some of your weaknesses weren't stopping you from doing the job. But now you want to go into leadership and now maybe you realize, okay, those weaknesses that I had that didn't really impact me. Now I'm looking at advancement and, oh, shoot, I better get a lot better at this before I move into the next role. Um, so they'll creep up on you, but focus on them when it's important to focus on them. Last question, Christina, and uh, then uh, we're pretty much moving close to, uh, to the wrap here. What would you tell your 25-year-old self? Oh, buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> which, oh, <laughs> which is funny because, you know, at, at 25, I, I had already been through such a roller coaster, but um, I would have said, uh, buckle up. It's going to be a ride. There's going to be more good than bad. Because um, in the moments when things are hard, you feel like it's all encompassing, um, but, it, but it's not, you know? It comes back to the idea of perseverance. So 25-year-old Christina, buckle up. Uh, it's gonna be a ride, but it's gonna be worth it. I love it. What uh, the final, final message would you like to leave the audience with? Anything I haven't asked you, but you wish I did in this interview? Um, I feel like this has been a beautiful conversation, but what I think I will leave people with is, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of journeys and, and how to be successful. And the thing that I will say um, 
And I was reminded of this during my conversation with uh, Allison Haddon through her company and her podcast, No Time to Waste. Um, make sure that it all means something. We have a limited amount of time. Of all the resources in the world that are renewable, your time is not renewable. And every moment that you spend, if you're taking up somebody else's time, um, leave them with a smile on their face if you can. And at the end of the day, you want to live a life with little to no regret. And so whatever that means for you, just be conscious of it and living a full life and keep in mind what matters. Um, and it's okay if that answer changes. Sometimes it does. And don't forget to buckle up. And buckle up. If you're doing something meaningful. Buckle up for safety. <laughs> <laughs> well, Christina, this was super much, super fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This is a great conversation. All right, guys, another episode of Off the Record Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this one. We will be coming with more cool founders and leaders with you for you soon. And we'll see you in the next one. <laughs> <laughs>